Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we welcome to the SASPod three guests who will introduce themselves momentarily. We are going to talk about the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, and we will make this a two-part podcast. So part one, if you're listening to that, part two will drop in about one to two weeks. And if you're starting with part two, but have not heard part one, uh, please go back to our webpage and listen to that, uh, either before or after listening to part two. In part one, we will try to provide an overview of how we got to where we are today. And then in part two, we're gonna try and project into the future uh, and uh, figure out what are some of the options available to make sense uh, of the troop withdrawal and its, um, its ramifications. Please introduce yourselves. My name is Robert Cruz. I teach in the history department at Stanford. Hi, I'm Mishkan Masumi. I recently graduated from Stanford from the Department of History, and I will soon be a postdoctoral uh, fellow in the college program also at Stanford. Hi, I'm Sabo Nasseri, and I am a PhD student. I'm in my sixth year, and I work on the Afghan left. Thank you all so much for making time. We're already technically in summer. Uh, I know that in the Bay Area, we are really feeling that at the moment, uh, the heat of summer. When we talked before the podcast, I, I kind of wanted to ask you about uh, some of the history of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. And I was worried that that was um, showing, up, showing up my ignorance, perhaps, asking that question. Uh, and you all said, oh, no, it's, it's really, you know, you are right to be confused. It is really complicated. Uh, so, Professor Cruz, can we start with you? What happened? How did we get here? Well, there, there is, a, I suppose, a, a, for all such questions, I mean, there's a, a short version and a long version, and I'm eager to hear from Mishkan and Saba to see how they would interpret this. But I think that, I mean, on the one hand, there's a very long history of American engagement with Afghanistan that goes back to the 1940s and 50s, when the U.S., alongside the Soviet Union, was a major partner in supporting various projects of development in Afghanistan. And then, of course, crucially, after the Soviet invasion in 1979, even actually even on the eve of the Soviet invasion, in 1978, 1979, uh, the U.S. became more deeply involved in Afghan politics and then played a crucial role, a pivotal role in supporting a group of resistance fighters known as the Mujahideen, that is those who engage in jihad against the Afghan leftist government that Sabah studies um, and their backers in Moscow. So in fact, the, the long story is, is one of very intense American involvement with Afghan politics, um, which predated 9-11. But of course, we're here, I think, largely to speak about the last 20 years or so. And there, I think, you know, the, the events of 9-11 you know, are well known. Um, we, we can revisit that if there's interest. But I think 
it's crucial to think about the American involvement beginning in fall of 2001 as the beginning of a, a war of American national prestige. Of course, the idea was to combat the militant group that had attacked the United States um, on September 11th, 2001. But I think very quickly, the, this this war of um, of revenge, you know, in effect, um, the, the, the then George W. Bush presidency felt very vulnerable because of the deaths of some 3,000 people, the attacks on, on Washington and, and New York. And I think there was a question of, really at the heart of the American government, a question of, of legitimacy. Looking up to this, people like Condoleezza Rice, National Security Advisor, had imagined that the world would be shaped by competition among great powers. And they were looking at the rise of China and looking to further contain Russia. And then they're blindsided by this Islamist um, group, Al-Qaeda. And the United States thought, thought that it would defeat this organization in Afghanistan and um, restore American prestige. And now some 20 years on, we see that that mission has, has faltered in all of its initial stated goals. So I'm hearing you say nothing about uh, security in Afghanistan itself. Sure. Um, I mean, the, the initial American involvement, which very quickly became a, a, a very broad international coalition, was always fundamentally about American security. It was about securing what we started to call the American homeland against Al-Qaeda, which was thought to be based in Afghanistan almost exclusively. And so there's a, a major contradiction early on about um, the actual geography of this, of this threat. Uh, so it was imagined in Washington at the time to be situated in a geographic space called Afghanistan. And we know, of course, and many of us know at the time that that was a, a misunderstanding, but Afghan security was never really a concern. Um, if you look at the establishment of, well, first of all, that it was relatively easy for the U.S. to depose the Taliban government uh, and to scatter its fighters to Pakistan and to the mountains and so on. But when the United States turned to actually establishing a government, I mean, the impulse was very much a kind of neocolonial one in that they wanted to have a strong figure who would act as an intermediary for American power. Mm. And so the, the interests of, of common Afghans was never was never part of this scenario. It wasn't part of the imagination of those who constructed a government in Germany in December 2001, which arguably created the kind of structural flaws uh, for the state that we see struggling to survive today. And that it created a, first of all, it, it returned um, from the diaspora, uh, a group of politicians who had very strained relations with Afghan politics and with Afghans who had stayed in the country. It empowered a group of people who had been opponents of the Taliban, but who also were strong men who had very little interest in constructing a state that also had all Afghans' interests in mind. So at this fateful moment, early, already in December 2001, we see the construction of a state that was never really about Afghan security. It was meant to be a kind of conduit of, of American security, in fact. And that's one of the fatal flaws of the construction of the state, which has, has made it vulnerable to the Taliban challenge, which began to you know, re-emerge in 2003-2004, and which has made it such a, you know, a, a precarious enterprise to the present. And yet I remember very clearly a narrative around helping the people of Afghanistan. Absolutely, Lalita. I think, you know, this, this moment in time comes in 2001 after um, uh, the terrible attacks of 9-11. 
And you know, America's military intervention um, uh, is claimed as a victory um, for Afghanistan and for the United States in destroying the Taliban government. But it really, what, what happened um, is that it fractured this movement and it scattered its forces. And the Americans um, came in once again into the country um, uh, with, um, with sort of an agenda to again instill in experts and instill in projects um, that were intended to improve uh, quality of life and uh, infrastructure and uh, uh, the general atmosphere inside uh, Afghanistan. Um, unfortunately, the outcome of that uh, uh, was several different things. Uh, you know, it started out with, um, first of all, trying to, to gain a semblance of a functioning government inside of the country. Um, and there was much electoral fraud. Um, there were all sorts of financial abuse, abuses um, uh, that occurred. Uh, you know, uh, and that have been shared through uh, Afghan and American officials. Um, there's these incredible reports um, that come to surface throughout the, the post-2001 um, decades. <clears throat> I think most recently, the Afghanistan papers in 2019, this was sort of the confidential trove of government documents um, that I think the Washington Post uh, obtained. And, you know, those documents reveal that senior US officials really failed to tell the truth about the war in Afghanistan throughout their, at the time, 18 year campaign. Um, and they made a lot of rosy pronouncements like the ones you, you just mentioned, Lolita, uh, where Laura Bush is talking about, you know, um, providing aid and uh, programs for Afghan women. Um, and they knew that a lot of these pronouncements uh, were false. Mm -hmm. And um, they were hiding a lot of unmistakable evidence um, that you know this war had become winnable. Um, and I mean that was just uh, the start of many other things um, uh, to come here that that really make uh, this entire um, the entire question that you're asking quite complicated. <laughs> Um, beginning with the Bush administration, then even under President Barack Obama, uh, I mean, all this reliance on militias, assassinations are increasing, drone strikes increase, um, civilians are suffering every single day at the hands of the Taliban, um, and still we're questioning, you know, the human costs of this strategy that's being pursued inside the country, um, and. Uh, it's, yeah, I'll leave it there. Seba, I don't know if you want to add um, some comments as well. Sure, I'll, I'll try to add something. I, I think, I, I wonder whether it's possible to have violence without what is called human rights. And, and uh, in this case, women, the example that we give women's rights, because when the US military goes to Afghanistan, it needs roads. So it brings construction workers. It has to pay people to work for them. It needs hospitals for its own men also for people that work for them uh, it needs teachers uh, you know the whole hearts and minds things uh, so i think imperialism is kind of a an economy of violence right all of these things go together um, in this economy in some cases benefits certain groups uh, certain regions of afghanistan 
um, but larger parts suffer, uh, right? So the doctor, the engineer, the, the teacher also comes with a drone, the soldier and the bomb. Um, so when we speak of, you know, human rights, I think that was an afterthought, but it's always, in my opinion, part of imperialism. So I want to slow you all down a little bit and, and just um, kind of tease out a little bit more the time leading up to 9-11. 9-11, it seems to be the moment that we remember, but I also find it fascinating to remind myself that our incoming undergraduates uh, and, and many of our listeners, they don't remember a time before 9-11. So this is all they know. And, and I think it's important to step back a little. So Saba, can I just hand this to you? Can you, can you go back a little bit and explain a little bit more that really it didn't start with 9-11? Oh, yeah. So I, I think as, as Bob has said already, there were um, a time when the United States, Western Europe and the US were all competing for Afghanistan as far as through funding, what we would call a hearts and minds today. Right, so US aid, for instance, was huge in Afghanistan. Um, but what happens, maybe crucial for, for our discussion here, is 1978, uh, 1977, uh, when the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, or PDPA, overthrows the uh, um, Republican government uh, mm. of the Khan. And uh, this is when the US, uh, so this is a few months before the Russians invade, the US starts helping the Mujahideen. And they start uh, funneling money to Pakistan uh, and calling on allies. Um, and so it's not just the US, it's the British, Western Europe, all of these groups are involved through different organizations. Doctors Without Borders, for instance, is involved. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, although they come later, but all these things are being set up by the US slowly. Uh, so they're banking kind of on the Mujahideen to, to turn into a force, a real force to, um, to draw in the, the Soviets. Um, and uh, there aren't enough archives to argue that this is exactly as it is, but, but there is a national security advisor to uh, Carter, um, Brzezinski. So he has said later in life that, you know, it was part of his plan to draw in the Soviets through the Mujahideen. Um, so one would argue that the U.S. involvement, especially uh, direct military involvement in a way, uh, uh, or at least um, violent involvement, comes through in 1978. And then the Soviets invade in 79, and does that then bolster the U.S. resolve to work uh, to, to the U.S. and other, but I imagine the U.S. perhaps more so than Western Europe, to support the uh, the the counter troops, so to speak. U.S. more so, uh, yes, but uh, but I think most of the West as well, uh, because I I think we we can't really talk about this as if it's a dialectic between the U.S. and Afghanistan and the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Um, I, I think it is a larger question. Uh, mm-hmm. right? It is a larger movement, just as everything moves through borders, including violence, and and I think. Uh, it also is, uh, maybe we can talk about this later, but it, it has become also a South Asian question. So Pakistan and India are also involved. Uh, Pakistan mm-hmm. supporting the Mujahideen, India supporting the leftist government, the PDP. I'm really trying to get a sense of, of 
um, how early the United States was involved. And then I want to get to this point where um, where everything really backfired. The people that they were funding ended up turning against them, or at least that's the narrative as I have understood it. Can, can you speak to that, how that kind of went the quote-unquote wrong way? Right. So I, I think what happens then is that uh, once... Uh, the PDPA falls in 1992, um, the Mujahideen take over and they start infighting um, right away. Even before the PDPA falls, they start infighting. That's why the PDPA is able to stay in power for three years after the Soviets leave. Uh, so they fall in 1992 and then the Mujahideen start infighting and then the Taliban come in in 1996, uh, which, is, which has little relationship with the US. So the US supported militias at this point are defeated or fighting in uh, small corners of the country. Uh, the US and Western European supported militias. Um, um, when it blows back is, uh, is when the Taliban start giving uh, sanctuary to, to terrorists, or at least uh, Osama bin Laden, who is accused of having masterminded the 9-11 attacks. Uh, and, and that is what uh, draws in the U.S. again in Afghanistan, uh, militarily this time, and not just um, through aid or, or uh, military uh, support. Okay, um, so the United, so the, the, the Taliban get a certain amount of power. The U.S. is not involved in that at that point, but then they become involved again after 9-11 in this, uh, what Bob has referred to as a, a war of revenge. Is that a, a, a good summary? Yes, that's that's correct. I think there is some U.S. involvement, but it has more to do with pipelines and oil and stuff. So it's it, the U.S. was more concerned at that time about its uh, about oil. Uh, uh, yeah, that was from Central Asia to uh, to Pakistan and then India. Hmm. And, and Meshkan, can you speak to what life, the way that life under the Taliban is, is presented to, to us in the West is, uh, it, it, it's just very, very, very bleak. Is there a more nuanced way of looking at it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, it, in Western media, we do have a very uh, sort of, um, psychologically disturbing um, understanding of what life was like under uh, the Taliban regime. And um, absolutely, I mean, their, their rules and restrictions um, uh, did sort of um, confine um, movement uh, and um, the ability to exercise certain um, freedoms in daily life but the extent to which uh, um, the, the extent to which uh, we understand it from a Western point of view um, is definitely flawed um, in the sense that a lot of people, a lot of the rules and restrictions that they were um, placing on daily life um, coincided um, with a lot of um, the ways that um, many, not all, but many conservative Afghan families um, live their daily life. Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, there's, uh, you know, reports that um, indicate that the Taliban um, uh, stopped all uh, schooling um, for women and whatnot, but there were, you know, there were um, people sort of um, circumventing 
uh, a lot of things that the, the, the Taliban government um, was uh, decreeing or pronouncing to the public um, as they as Afghans have been doing um, throughout history, previous governments, um, previous uh, um, kings also um, uh, proclaimed certain rules and restrictions on society and daily life. Um, and Afghans, you know, they, uh, they dissented against this and found loopholes and ways to exist despite the restrictions put on, um, on daily life. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I don't know, Rob, uh, Bob and Saba, if you guys want to speak a little bit more about this as well. Um, but it's my understanding that um, in spite of the fact that yes, it was a very restrictive um, moment in time and we cannot negate uh, the abhorrent atrocities uh, uh, they inflicted on the Afghan uh, people. Um, uh, there were ways of circumventing um, and there were ways of existing um, despite some of those restrictions. Thank you. Any other uh, comments on that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think Mishkan is totally right. Um, I, I think um, hmm, um, it, it's, it's very hard to say. It, it's difficult for me to say something positive about the Taliban. So I, I, I think, but hmm. So there are certain good things, right? The Mujahideen were, the infighting was just, people were just sick of the infighting. So when the Taliban first came, certain places in Afghanistan were, were okay with them uh, because they needed very harsh punishments for stealing, for instance, um, and, uh, and that, uh, you know, uh, made some people happy just because they were already suffering, so they were happy with um, with whatever they could get. But at the same time, um, I think ethnic violence, uh, violence among ethnic lines uh, increased with their arrival. Um, so I, I, don't, I, I think it's just too soon. Maybe I'm too involved in it for me to be able to um, see it beyond the bleakness of the West, of how the West has described it. Um, Okay, we, we do. Yeah, I'm not looking for a, a right answer. I'm just, um, I, I'm always curious uh, what the uh, what the reality is because in even what I would consider good media don't always present the full picture. Like there's always more, and so I'm 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 always trying to get to that uh, in the podcast. I think the thing, the question of you know what 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 do the Taliban mean to Afghans and how that's evolved over time, I think is, is essential. I mean, there's no one representation, one, you know, one stable one, but I think that, you know, as Saba and Mujah noted, I mean, the, the element of, you know, the reliance on gender violence in particular um, was extremely divisive, right? I mean, as Mujah noted, I mean, certain things about um, female seclusion, you know, is practiced beyond Taliban circles, of course. But I think it's also useful to recall that you know, the Taliban came out of the jihad of the 1980s, um, and they saw themselves when they appeared on stage in Kandahar and then Kabul in the early nineties as being somehow related to those groups, but, but different and claiming a new kind of, a new kind of politics. And I think that they imagined themselves restoring some, you know, kind of imagined morality that had supposedly existed in Afghanistan before. Mm. And, and to be sure that, that, you know, Asaba noted that, that really hit a chord with me, people living particularly in, in unstable areas. And here, I think, you know, the, the ethnic dimension is also crucial because, uh, I think you know there was a resonance and remains such 
you know, among, you know, some Pashtun communities for the Taliban, um, you know, by family, by community, and by language, by certain cultural references. Um, so there's a framework in which, you know, for some Afghans, I mean, the, the Taliban are Robin Hoods, you know, when they, when they came to the stage, one of the first narratives about them was that they actually had emerged to combat violence against women and in one narrative um, against children. Mm. And these are, these are kind of sexual narratives about, you know, the, the violation of the, of the, of the honor, morality, goodness of a first woman and then children. So this idea of the Taliban performing a kind of restorative justice, I think is, is important to understand, first of all, where they came from and then you know, why, despite being decimated you know, monthly by NATO and U.S. forces for 20 years, the movement manages to recreate itself. And part of this has to do, of course, with the very close ties to Pakistan, but there's also something cultural going on that you know, one can find in their in their poetry and now in more recent times very strikingly the ways that they've developed a very sophisticated media campaign a multimedia campaign using video using song using all kinds of visual imagery to to introduce ideas of martyrdom which do have some resonance among at least young men who continue to replenish their ranks but as, as much as noted i mean you, you have much of afghan society who resisted or avoided uh, these very draconian you know, very kind of law-based um, understandings of rule in the case of the Taliban and the, the Taliban to be sure um, transformed the lives of, of especially urban women you know who were deprived of opportunities to work out of the home to visit hospitals and so on and then I think you know Saba noted I think it really accelerated the, um, the process of, of ethnic polarization within the country with Taliban targeting um, Hazaras um, you know as Hazaras as you know not exclusively but majority uh, Shi'i communities um, in ways that very much affect how people think about it today. And the whole prospect of the Taliban re returning is is quite interesting when you look you look through the, the eyes of different actors. I mean, if you go back to the 1990s, you asked about the U.S. role, um, the current envoy representing the White House that is meant to negotiate peace in Afghanistan is a figure named Zalmai Khalilzad, who was an American PhD, a kind of uh, favorite of neocon circles, who in the 1990s actually argued in 1996 famously that the Taliban would be okay. They would be like Saudi Arabia. They'd be like the Saudi dynasty. He wrote a very famous op-ed in the Washington Post, this effect. Um, what the Washington Post didn't reveal was that he was actually working for an oil company at the time, <laughs> California-based Unical. So the idea was that, you know, as, as Saba noted, I think earlier, that you know the Taliban, yeah, we may not like their politics, but they can be like the Saudis, and they like Islamic law, and we can deal with that. That's the history of American geopolitics. Um, and then, you know, the Taliban went, went beyond that, which created friction. But there were key times when the Taliban, even after the initial, you know, turn against them, you know, when the Clinton administration definitely uh, rethought its its support for the Taliban, there were moments of cooperation uh, around the elimination of opium, because by this point, you know, Afghanistan had become the world's greatest producer of, of opium and you know, related drugs. And um, so... On that basis, you know, there was always room for conversation. If, in fact, if one looks at some of the classified materials, the head of the Taliban movement, well, Mohammed Omar, was in constant communication with Washington. And even on the summer of 2000, summer of 2001, um, the U.S. made a, a payment of, I think, some $70 million to the Taliban government, essentially in the, in the form of humanitarian relief. But it was, and it was also, at the time, couched as kind of a reward for helping eradicate the previous year's uh, opium production. Yes. So there was room for maneuver and in, in, in the present and people, you know, if we think of the context today, bizarrely, I mean, the United States has 
forged alliances, according to some accounts, say in Syria with Al-Qaeda affiliated groups. The United States has, has uh, apparently had a kind of tactical cooperation on the battlefield in Afghanistan today against the Islamic State, who supposedly has set up cells there. So the whole kind of fungibility and movability of alliances and setting is quite striking, especially when one thinks about the initial war aims announced by Washington in 2001. Um, but again, leaving ahead to the, to, the, to the present, I think you know, most people in Kabul would, would you know, are horrified at the, the idea that, that the Taliban may once again march into the city. Uh, but as Saba noted, I mean, this, you know, how do we end the war, but um, or how, 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 does Af- how does Afghan society end the war, but with some kind of peace agreement, which would have to mean some kind of uh, power sharing, perhaps. But of course, if one looks back to this legacy of this very crucial period of rule from 1996, 2001, for many, the memory is of, is of stonings, is of ethnic cleansing, uh, is of you know, very intense sectarian politics. And for many Afghans, of course, this is all the Taliban, you know, loom as the puppets of, of Pakistan. So that narrative is, is quite strong and, and, and makes really underscores the regional politics, which are so complicated. And so one of the constant refrains today is that the Taliban are nothing more than you know, the sons of Pakistan. And so the debate about you know, the extent to which the Taliban even belong to Afghanistan, I think structures a lot of people you know, how, how they remembered than how they imagined to have a future. So that is, thank you so much for clarifying all that. And and I do want to talk about Pakistan and about India as well. So um, let's move into that. What is the relationship then between Afghanistan and the rest of South Asia, not only Pakistan, but let's start with Pakistan and then we can branch out to the other countries as well. Uh, the Afghan leadership, you know, we're talking about what the problem is. Um, and then Bob mentioned Azalmai Khalilazad, who is uh, an... Uh, Afghan-American. Um, but part of the issue that I've been noticing this starts in the 1980s is that the Afghan leadership, uh, those who can move things at least, are almost like imperial agents who are exploring political careers in Afghanistan without any risk uh, because they live in a, their families live in other countries, they have bases in other countries, including Pakistan, India, Western Europe, and the United States, including uh, the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, many of their sons and daughters and uh, nieces and nephews and other family members uh, go to uh, universities, uh, including Stanford. And yet they do politics in Afghanistan. Uh, so there is a huge disconnect between the people and its leadership. Again, those who can move things. Uh, because when we look at uh, the president, Ashraf Ghani, um, he has his base outside of Afghanistan. He has mostly left outside of Afghanistan. Uh, his, his family is not there. Uh, when we look at the second in command, Abdullah Abdullah, his base is mostly in uh, India. And the same goes for many leadership, many in the leadership of the Taliban or someone like Gulbuddin, whose bases are in Pakistan and they have businesses in Pakistan. And yet they do politics in Afghanistan. Um, and today, I think it is becoming more and more South Asian question because as as the Americans, as soon as the Americans announced that they are leaving, uh, newspapers in Pakistan in India were scrambling about what who is going to be our allies now in Afghanistan, who are we going to support now in Afghanistan. Um, so I, I don't know if anyone can add anything else to that or, or correct me on that. Thank you, Sabah. Mejigan, did you did you were you able to gather your thoughts? Sure. Yeah, I was uh, trying to uh, answer the question about Afghanistan's relationship 
with Pakistan. Um, and again, I don't know how early we want to start, but um, in my own work and research, I discuss a little bit, uh, uh, you know, uh, the issue of the creation of Pashtunistan. And really, as, as early as the late 1940s, early 1950s, there was a movement um, to create a separate state for um, the Pashtuns, um, an ethnic group inside of Afghanistan. Um, and this, this movement carried over into the 1970s under the leadership of, of Dawood Khan, who was um, for a time uh, prime minister um, uh, and then later um, president uh, of Afghanistan. Um, and when he served, uh, when Dawood Khan served as prime minister, um, he was actually forced to resign his position um, partially due to his support for this nationalistic reunification of the Pashtun people living primarily between, uh, you know, uh, the Afghan-Pakistan border region. So roughly comp uh, comprising Pakistan's two provinces, the Northwest Frontier Province and Balochistan. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, uh, after you know the departure of Great Britain from India and you know the subsequent partition, um, the incorporation of Pashtun inhabited territories to the east and to the south of Afghanistan were annexed to the new nation of Pakistan. And this has always been sort of like a, a nerve point uh, um, for Afghans um, when you know partition occurred and these um, uh, these lands were divided. I mean, and to this day, the, that border between Afghanistan and Pakistan um, is still contentious um, mm. for many Afghans. Um, and then, you know, also this, um, I mean, the idea of where the Taliban come from, what their ethnic backgrounds are, um, that most people, uh, most pundits claim their, um, their, their, Pashtun and um, Pakistani roots um, also adds uh, sort of more uh, tension to this conflict. But I mean, I think, you know, um, for me, as I understand it, um, there's a lot, there's still a lot of resentment that um, not all, but many Afghans um, hold towards, um, uh, towards the creation um, of Pakistan because these lands were annexed from Afghanistan and that Afghan, um, Afghan rulers and Af many Afghan people and communities believe that that land originally belongs to Afghanistan. And I think, um, yeah, it just, it's still, those wounds still um, come up today in their discussions and Afghans discussions of Taliban and current politics. There is a longer history that comes in um, that comes in their purview and sort of impacts their um, relationship and impacts their ideas about what their neighbors are doing inside of their their country right. um, and the relationship between the two neighbors as well. Meshgan, thank you so much. I think this is a great place to end part one of the two-part podcast. And uh, for our audience, please check back in in a week or so when we will continue the conversation with Robert Cruz, Meshgan Masumi and Sabawan Nasseri. Thank you.
you for listening to the SASPod, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come